Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free, but still want to discover the seen and unseen. When Jesus Walked in Leicester Square by Natalie Garrett So I've met Jesus twice before. Over 20 years ago, I joined the cast of The Life of Christ at Wintershall, the epic outdoor drama experience that takes you through the story of Jesus's life. And it's still going strong. As well as being crowd person 176 with glorified tea towel on head, I was cast as the bride at the wedding in Cana. Apart from Jesus, the rest of the cast were local normal people, as in not professional actors, and I rather shyly attended the first rehearsal knowing no one. I'd been sitting on my own for a bit when Jesus walked in and caught my eye. He walked straight over to me and shook my hand. You must be Natalie, he said. For a moment, I forgot that he was an actor and I thought you really are Jesus and you know me by name. But Then I remembered that I was the only new addition to the cast and he was just a really nice guy welcoming me to the company. Some eight years or so later, I was involved in the Oxford Passion, a passion play written for and produced by Creation Theatre Company in Oxford. I helped write the script and played the role of Mary Magdalene. The actor Tom Peters, who played Jesus in that production, was incredible. As an actor... And as a Christian, it was an extraordinary experience, sharing some powerful scenes with Jesus. Each night for several weeks, I had to watch my beloved Christ being crucified all over again. I wept deeply every night. Then, fast forward to Monday the 22nd of January 2024, and I'm in the Cinema UK premiere of season four of The Chosen in London's Leicester Square, and I see Jesus walk the red carpet. Surreal. In case you haven't come across The Chosen, it's a groundbreaking historical drama series created, directed and co-written by filmmaker Dallas Jenkins. It is the first multi-season series about the life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Primarily set in Judea and Galilee in the first century, the series centres on Jesus and the different people who met and followed or otherwise interacted with him. The emphasis is on portraying the authentic Jesus through the point of view of the people who spent time with him, asking the question, what did it really look like to be a follower of Jesus? It has quickly become a highly successful crowdfunding project with episodes viewed 700 million times and a big vision to reach a billion viewers by the end of season seven. Jonathan Rumi, who plays Jesus in The Chosen, says, Our fan base was entirely Christian at first, but because it's popularity, the show has attracted people from all faiths and no faith to the character of Jesus. We're trying to really portray his message of love and tender mercy. To raise awareness for the show, which can be streamed on Netflix and Amazon Prime or for free on the chosen app, season four was launched with a cinema release in Leicester Square. So 
There I was, in all my finery, lurking about, hoping to get a selfie with Jesus. And I had to pinch myself. When did Jesus become a worldwide celebrity with people whooping and whistling and jostling for his attention? Well, it happened when he rode a donkey into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, but not so much in the last 2,000 years, especially not in recent years in the West. What have the creators of The Chosen got so right that millions of people tune in to binge-watch the narrative of the gospel story? First up, Jesus laughs. A lot. He smiles and he hugs people. He's intensely personable and bloke next doory. He's not very good at ball games, for one thing. But he also, when necessary, exerts huge personal authority. There is a confident, courageous, generous humility to him that is hugely attractive. When the going gets tough, you think he'd be good to have around. But also, he's great company around the dinner table, telling stories and listening too. Because of the way the story is told, through the eyes of those who knew Jesus, we get drawn into the personal dramas of the Twelve Disciples, as well as a wider group, including several women. It even includes some Romans, who are clearly the bad guys, but drawn equally plausibly as the other more sympathetic characters. In the lives of these people, we find the domestic reality of the human experience, working hard to put food on the table, relating to family members, suffering illness and even miscarriage. And then we see the difference that it makes to have the Son of God around. And that's the hook. That's what means the viewer becomes deeply invested in the show. Because it turns out the people in the Bible aren't super spiritual giants. They're people like you and me. They struggle with the day-to-day realities of life. They're confused and they mess up. And then they meet Jesus It's a huge risk creating a show when everyone knows how it ends. As we watch, even in the early seasons, we know where the narrative arc is going. And yet, somehow, we still want to find out what happens. Because we are invested in the stories of the Roman centurion, who looks as if he might come over to the light side. We're keen to find out how Simon Peter and his wife get over their marital difficulties. We're cheering for the success of the olive oil business set up by Zebedee, that's James and John's dad, along with the help of some shrewd businesswomen who are also numbered amongst the chosen. When I see a dramatised version of any book I've read, I usually get quite angry. That's not what he or she looks like. That's not how they talk. And dramatising part of the best-selling book of all time, The Four Gospels of the Bible, It's quite a risky choice for a TV programme. But I recognise the Jesus in The Chosen as the Jesus that I know and love, and there is no higher accolade I can give than that. The extraordinary success of the show is that millions of people have watched it and been drawn in. Millions of people have invested not just their time and viewing commitment, but also their money. The show is entirely crowdfunded and the show's makers are deeply committed to building community around what they're doing. 
Fans are invited to participate in the crowd scenes, being the 5,000 who get fed, for example. And there is almost as much behind-the-scenes content produced as the show itself. There's a buzz around what they're doing, and it's spreading way beyond the homes of Christian fan base. When Jonathan Rumi arrived for the season four premiere in Leicester Square, it was like a rock star had stepped out of the car. Such was the reach and excitement around his portrayal of Jesus in The Chosen. For hundreds of years, Christian artists have used the creative arts at their disposal, stained glass windows, music, fine art, to try to convey the authentic Jesus to the world. In our time, TV programmes are the art form of greatest impact and the digital distribution now available to the makers of The Chosen affords unprecedented access to their material around the world as they aim to dub it into 600 languages ensuring that 95% of people worldwide can watch it spoken in their native language. Is it too soon to suggest that The Chosen may be the Sistine Chapel of our age? It's certainly too early to try and guess the impact that this cultural phenomenon will have on the world's faith journey. But if the reaction on the red carpet at Leicester Square last Monday night is anything to go by, Jesus seems to be making a comeback. We need to weep over the wreckage of mental illness by Rachel Newham. Today, February the 1st, is Time to Talk Day. It's part of a long-running campaign encouraging people to have open and honest conversations about mental health. Its aim is to break down the barriers of stigma and misunderstanding. It has been a staggering success. What was a fringe issue talked by those only affected by mental illness a decade ago is now part of common parlance. Mental health training is widely available and the charity's work has been seen to have a significant positive impact on the mental health conversation. However, as our familiarity with the language of mental health has grown, so too has the way we use it. People might talk about having PTSD after a bad date or their friend being so OCD about the way they organise Unwittingly, as psychotherapist and author Julia Samuels points out, we have awareness without real understanding. However, awareness without understanding means we actually don't reach those most impacted by mental illness. We know about mental health in the way we know about our physical health, but we are no more aware about the serious, sometimes lifelong mental illnesses which rob people of hope, joy and vitality, sometimes leaving them with lifelong disability. If you ask most people about mental illness, they may tell you about depression and anxiety, the two most common mental illnesses which have become the acceptable face of mental illness. It's reflected in the way funding is channelled to interventions that get people with mental illness back to work or to NHS talking therapies, which offers short-term psychological therapies, both of which are important initiatives, but have cut the number of inpatient beds from over 50,000 in 2001 to under 25,000 in 2022-3. Which means... Those at the more severe end of the spectrum of mental health to mental illness 
are left to travel 300 miles for the care they need. Whilst it's right that we have raised awareness about the most common conditions, we can't ignore the illnesses that are termed severe and enduring mental illnesses, which include those such as bipolar disorder, major depression, schizophrenia and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. For people living with these conditions, the general mental health advice that we give, for example getting enough sleep and time outdoors, may not be enough to keep the symptoms at bay. Just as general physical health advice like getting your five a day will not cure or prevent all severe physical illnesses. Medication, hospitalisation and at times even restrictions of freedom like being detained under the Mental Health Act might be necessary to save lives. These are stories that we need to hear. The debilitating side effects of life-saving medications that can raise blood pressure cause speech impediments. The injustices to confront, such as the fact that black people are five times more likely to be detained under the Mental Health Act than their white counterparts. And the adjustments to life that those with disabilities are required to make to their lives. We have to survey the wreckage that severe and enduring mental illness causes before we can begin to rebuild a society that is kinder, without prejudice or stigma. We have to listen to the perhaps devastating, perhaps uncomfortable stories of those who live with severe and enduring mental illness. The mental health inpatient units miles from home, the lack of freedom, the searing, unending grief. By hearing these stories, we are accepting them as a part of reality. For those of us in churches, it might be that the healing didn't come in the way we expected. It might also be all of us accepting that the systems designed to care for those with mental illness have in fact caused more harm. It's seeing the injustices and understanding that we, our systems and professionals, need to change our attitudes. Understanding and acceptance of the injustice are the way forward. That's the only way change can come. It might look like standing in the rubble. It might feel too huge and all but hopeless. And yet, in scripture and in life, that is so often the only way we can begin to rebuild. In the book of Nehemiah, one of the Old Testament prophets who lived in exile far away from home for his whole life, we see that upon hearing about the state of the walls of Jerusalem before he did any of the things we expect heroes and innovators to do, he wept. In fact, it's estimated that for four months he wept over the state of the place that had once been the envy of the ancient world. Perhaps we too need to hear the stories and then weep. Weep for the lives lost, the crumbling systems, the harm caused by both mental illness and the way we try to treat them. And then slowly, we can begin the work of rebuilding. It isn't a work that can be done alone by a single agency, much less a single person. It requires society to hear stories of the more than just palatable mental illnesses with neat and tidy endings to the messy and sometimes traumatic stories that are there if we just care to listen to them.
might be reflected in the petitions we sign, the way we vote, the stories we choose to read. So, this Time to Talk Day, I'm saying let's continue the amazing work of talking about mental health. We need to keep talking about anxiety and depression. But let us also make conversations wider so that they encompass the whole continuum of mental health and illness. We've seen the difference Time to Talk can make. Now it's time to talk about severe and enduring mental illnesses too. Even the best have their limits. Jürgen Klopp's Lessons for Life by Jonathan Rowlands. 10.36am, Friday 26th of January 2024. A video is posted by Liverpool Football Club. It's an interview with Jürgen Klopp himself. They only do this if it's something big. Maybe he's going to extend his contract at the club. Maybe they've found a replacement hamstring for Mo Salah. I will leave the club at the end of the season. It is an absolute gut punch and the sentence hits me like a truck. A feeling of shock washes over me. I'm reminded of a video, a young lad in Liverpool in 1974, being told Bill Shankly has resigned. He is in complete denial and just flat out unable to accept the truth of the matter. Fifty years later... At 10.36 on Friday, the 26th of January 2024, I am that young lad. This can't be real. He's not really going. This is one of those AI deep fake things. Jürgen's not leaving. Is he? I knew this was coming, but I didn't think it would be so soon. I'm not ready. My mind is in chaos and I am a mess of contradictions. My wife is out, and the only other person in the house I can talk to is a cat who does not understand the gravity of the situation. All too quickly, it becomes painfully clear that this is real. He is leaving, and soon. When I return to reality, more questions emerge. Why is he leaving? Is he okay? Has he been offered a better job? Has he been sacked? I'm running out of energy. He says, Jürgen Klopp, manager of Liverpool Football Club, has the best job in the world, is outstandingly good at it and, at only 56, feels as though he doesn't have the energy for it anymore. What a thought. Surely there has to be more to his leaving than this. It can't be that simple. But no, it really is that simple. It's something unheard of in modern football, Jürgen hasn't been sacked for poor results. Liverpool are flying at the moment and at the time of writing could still win every competition they're in. He hasn't been offered another job somewhere else. He says he won't manage anywhere else for at least a year. He just hasn't got the energy to do this anymore. Despite what everyone at Liverpool wants, himself included, he feels it's the right time to acknowledge that he simply reached his limit. He can do no more. Jürgen shares many similarities with a pantheon of great Liverpool managers, of which he is now a part. The likes of Bill Shankey, Bob Paisley, Kenny Dalglish, still sung about on the cop to this day. 
One characteristic, however, strikes me above all others. All of Liverpool's greatest managers have been deeply philosophical, both about, both about football and about life itself. Klopp is no exception. The seeming mundanity of Klopp's decision to leave, and his reason for doing so, speaks to his own philosophical nature. It also speaks to something seldom noted about human nature more generally, our finitude. By finitude, I mean our inherent limitations as created beings. Put bluntly, one day, we will all die. We are finite. We are not infinite. This finitude is an inalienable part of being human. To be human is to be limited rather than limitless. We encounter our finitude at all moments of our lives, in our need to sleep, rest, eat, drink and so much more besides. Any moment at which we are not wholly self-sufficient, if we are ever wholly self-sufficient, when we rely on something beyond ourselves, we are faced with our own finitude. This finitude can certainly lead to difficult moments like, for example, having to watch one of your footballing heroes suddenly announce he's leaving your club. But beside this, there is goodness in finitude. Our creaturely limitations remind us that we are not God. Our finitude reminds us that we have come from infinitude. It reminds us that we need those around us and in turn they need us. These are good things to be reminded of, that we always live in a complex web of dependence on one another as we navigate our finitude together. Jürgen's resignation is such a shock because it speaks directly to this often unnamed aspect of our nature, this interdependence we all rely upon due to the limitations built into our human nature. He has simply recognised his finitude. It comes as such a shock, in part, because it is, rare, it is rare to see someone acknowledge their humanity and their limitations so plainly. Jürgen is running out of energy. Aren't we all? It is also striking, as the UK endures the slow run-up to what is likely to be an unedifying general election, that when faced with his own finitude, Jürgen has sought not to consolidate his own power and position, but freely to give it up. He could have run the place for as long as he wanted. If he had asked for a t- lifetime contract, few would have wanted to say no. This is part of what makes him such a compelling leader, his willingness to vacate positions of leadership when the time is right. Because it is this very vulnerability that makes him so authentically human. In the end, then, it is an act of love from Jürgen. Clearly, the decision has weighed on him somewhat. He is clear that he doesn't really want to go, but that he feels it's the right thing to do. Faced with his own finitude, with the limitations of his own creatureliness as a human being... The most loving thing he can do for the club is to walk away, to admit his own human fragility. There is something reminiscent here of the Apostle Paul, who claimed he would boast in his weaknesses, because that was how Christ dwelled in him. Whenever I am weak, then I am strong, said Paul. 
Jürgen, too, a devout Christian himself, has displayed immense strength in his weakness. I do not speak lightly when I say it is a deeply Christ-like decision on his part. To acknowledge our dependence on others, to acknowledge our inability always to be dependable, these things are acts of love born from recognition of our finitude. To love one another is not to pretend we can fix each other's problems, nor is it to avoid being a burden on other people. In depending on others and being depended upon, we become more and more like that which God has called us to be, finite, limited creatures in need of those around us. Our limitations are an opportunity to display love, not a hindrance to it. In all this, Jürgen acknowledges his own finitude in a way that is rare to see and clearly difficult even for himself fully to come to terms with. Like Jürgen, we are all running out of energy. This need not be a cause for sadness. It merely points us towards the one from whom that energy comes and reminds us of our dependency on him, on those around us. Our finitude is a gift, releasing us from the burden of being all things to all people. I still wish Jürgen was staying, though. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get seen and unseen aloud. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.